0: Verse 9, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, 9 through 20. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired Word of God. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, two-edged sword and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength and when I saw him I fell at his feet as dead and he laid his right hand upon me saying unto me fear not I am the first and the last I am he that liveth and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore amen and I have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Whenever I turn to Revelation chapter 1, uh, especially uh, following on that with chapters 2 and 3 as well, I turn to James Durham, a very godly, godly commentator in especially those, open, those opening chapters of the book of Revelation. Durham says this, His walking among the golden candlesticks points out, number one, his special presence in his church Though he be omnipresent throughout all the world, yet he hath a special manifestation of his presence in the church, and there is a special relation between him and them. As it's spoken of Israel, Psalm 147, 19, as compared with Deuteronomy 4, 7, What nation so great that hath, that hath God so near them in all things? He is near to his church in a singular manner. In the special effects of his presence. Number two. It points out his special care of the church. He chooseth his church as the pleasantest place in all the world to walk in. And he taketh pleasure there as in his garden and gallery. His common providence is extended to all the world. But he taketh special notice and hath a special care of his church above all the world. Isaiah 27, 3. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any uh, hurt it. I will keep it night and day. Very well said. We've been talking about a, a proper use and profiting from public worship. And in so doing, we introduce some general topics, first of all. Then we We've been settled on the topic of valuation for quite some time now. And I hope that, that, the, that the, the length of this sermon series is always a difficult thing you know, to know. Have I gone too long on this topic? Well, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I think that, that you're a congregation that can stay with the thought for, for as long as we have been at it. As we looked at Galatians 4 and Hebrews chapter 12. And we saw the great benefits that Zion has within her walls. And then we turned to Psalm 87 two weeks ago, and we saw what? That now, we've, now that we've seen its benefits and how beneficial it is to us, now we've also seen God's own preference of it in Psalm 87, right? God loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings or tents of Judah. So two weeks in that, and we took a look at several things there. Then, uh, last week, we wanted to do one particular thing left. We wanted to hone in on chapter 2. And we said that there were these seven things. Let's try to remember those seven things that we looked at last week. We said that the Lord loves the gates of Zion more because, number one, There's a greater manifestation of the glory of God there. Number two, his presence is more specially in Zion than in all the world. Number three, the clearest vision of the Lord is manifest in Zion. Number four, there is spiritual edification that is not anywhere else that exists in her. Number five, public worship is a better hedge against apostasy. Number six, the examples of the godly meeting the Lord in Zion and profiting from their communion with him. And number seven, the promises of the Lord are more numerous and greater in grace in the public worship than they are anywhere else. So we saw those seven things as to why the Lord loves the gates of Zion more. One, one more section of scripture. I don't know if we'll be, be able to make it through this section today, but one more section on valuation. And this one, this particular thing that we see here in Revelation chapter 1, beloved, is so sweet and it is so sublime and it is so affecting to the heart of the people of God, I want you to. Uh, I have prayed that I would be able rightly to bring it all out, but there's so much here. So let's dive into our uh, to our text here. We began our reading in verse nine. John is writing uh, to the seven churches of Asia Minor. We see that in verse four. He also says to them in verse nine, "I am your brother and companion in tribulation." and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, and that he is on the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Christ. And what that means is that John has been exiled to the island of Patmos. There's a division among New Testament historians as to whether or not there was a church there that John was able either to meet alone, if that was the exile, or if there were other inhabitants there with which he might be meeting, and it's impossible to know for sure. But I will say this as we move forward in this that in verse 10 John says I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. What day of the week was it beloved when the risen Christ in all of his mediatorial regalia met with John the Apostle? What day of the week was it? Well we're not left to guess. It was called the Lord's day and by the Lord's day here What we mean is, or what John means is that it was the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. The Christian Sabbath, now with all of its propriety, God's ownership, brought over to it in the resurrection of Christ to that first day of the week. Remember that in Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14, uh, the, uh, the prophet will tell us there that this is God's holy day. Take your foot off of it. Remember that? Take your foot off. This is my day. My holy day, the Lord says. From the creation, we know that the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. We also know from Isaiah that he claimed ownership over it. And now it is simply called here the Lord's day. Well, we, we do have a great inclination in the New Testament to understand that this was the first day of the week. And why would that be? Why would we understand it as the first day of the week? Do you remember what time Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week? Some of you will remember that very, very early. In fact, before it was light, the women got up so that they could be at the, uh, at the sepulcher of Christ, at the burial site of Christ, first light. They wanted to be their first light to begin the first day of the week With Christ. But when they got there, they found that he was risen on the first day of the week, right? That he had been raised from the dead and he was not there. The angel said, What? Come see where the Lord lay. He's not here, he's risen. So on that first day of the week, very early in the morning, but we also know that that same day, Christ met at least twice with his disciples later that day. He met with them on the same day in the upper room where the eleven were gathered, and he met with the two on the road to Emmaus, right? And that was on the same Sabbath that he was raised, or the same first day of the week, now the Christian Sabbath. And so, and then we also know from John's gospel that eight days later, or by Hebrew inclusive numbering, exactly one week later, Jesus met again with his disciples on the first day of the week, and that's when he said to Thomas, you wanted to see a hole in somebody's side? Okay, right here. How about these uh, nails, nail prints in my hands? How about that? Now, don't be faithless anymore, but be believing. What day was that? Seven days later, on the Sabbath day, Jesus establishes immediately upon the day of his resurrection that he's going to start meeting with his disciples on the first day of the week. When the Apostle Paul goes to uh troas in acts chapter 20 we find that he's with uh, he's with the people of troas for seven days he's got any day of the week to gather together with the people of god for worship and if they're worshiping on any day of the week he's going to be there what day do they gather to break bread and to hear preaching the first day of the week. When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached to them ready to depart upon the morrow and continued his speech until midnight. Eutychus falls out of the window. Paul raises him back up. They go back up into the the building and they continue preaching until midnight. I'm sorry, until the break of day. Okay? So, the New Testament pattern is obviously the meeting on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, now called the Christian Sabbath because... The Sabbath commandment remains in place. The day is changed, as Ahad said, and the Sabbath is preserved. The concept of the Sabbath remains, but the day changes. And if you read the fourth commandment with any kind of understanding, what does it say? Does it say, which day of the week shall be the Sabbath? It doesn't. Actually, in God's providence, he said, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. The only interval is six working and one resting. And so that can move from the last day of the week to the first day of the week without there ever being a change in the fourth commandment. Okay? Everybody understand that, right? This is not new to you all. So here's John. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What day was it that John decided, or sorry, Christ decided to meet with John on the first day of the week? And this tells me. Beloved, that what follows here, when when we read on in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, that we're going to hear things that pertain to that first day of the week, that pertain to how we want to understand the Lord Jesus Christ with his people Sabbath by Sabbath. Think about that for a moment. The Lord is going to reveal some wonderful things about himself. The first of which we will see here in a couple of moments is that he walks among the candlesticks. He dwells with his church. What day did Jesus choose to reveal that to John and to us? The first day of the week. The day when the church from the day of Christ's resurrection began to gather publicly. We might even take that a little bit farther, if you will, another interesting tidbit to understand historically is that uh, what is the day of Pentecost? What is that? It's a, it's a celebration that has something to do with 50 days. What is 50 days? It's 7 times 7 plus 1. If our Lord Jesus Christ was raised on the first day of the week, the Day of Unleavened Bread, the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Pentecost was 50 days inclusively after that. The Holy Spirit was sent when the church was gathered on the first day of the week, on the Christian Sabbath. So Pentecost also takes place on the Sabbath day, the Christian Sabbath, not the old Jewish Sabbath. And so our first understanding here is that when we come to... uh, Revelation 1, 9, and then 10, we hear that John, or maybe I I say it this way, Jesus meets with John on the first day of the week. Because that is the day when the church gathers. That is the day when the people of God come to hear the word of God. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, what thou seest write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Given in the order that they appear in chapters two and three. Okay, so the Lord himself tells John to write this letter and to send it to those seven churches in, that, in those seven locations of Asia Minor. Probably because John was an itinerant in and around those churches. That's where John normally ministered. And I say probably there because, again, the details are sketchy historically. So now John does what he often does in the book of Revelation. He hears something, and then he turns, and he sees something else. What does he hear? He heard the voice, and so he turned to see the voice... No, he didn't turn to see the voice. This is a manner of speech. He turned to see who was speaking. Right? You don't see a voice. Right? Okay. So he turned to see the voice. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. The first thing John records that he sees is not not the risen Christ. Not the risen Christ, but seven golden candlesticks. Again, in that Hebraistic mindset that John possessed, you mentioned first things first. You put the big rocks in first. You, you, you mentioned the important things first. And what stuck out to John when he turned were those seven golden candlesticks. Of course, the seven golden candlesticks, we remember, don't we? They are reminiscent of the menorah that was in the temple of the Lord right that the church is that living menorah of the lord by which the light of the lord is shed throughout the world but here it is the first day of the week jesus meets with john he reveals to him a vision and as soon as john turns he sees not christ he sees the seven golden candlesticks and in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks one like unto the son of man clothed with a garment and so on so it's the first day of the week <laughs> John meets with Christ. Christ, in order to meet with John, begins to speak a vision to him. And when John sees and understands the the particulars of that vision, he sees that on this same day of the week, on this first day of the week, Jesus is walking in the midst of the golden candlesticks. All of this is pointing us to an understanding of how we, we should perceive Christ to dwell among us in the public worship. We want to understand what is that special blessing that comes upon the churches as they meet with Christ on the first day of the week. So, let's move on. I saw in the midst of the seven candlesticks one like unto the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Let's talk about one like unto the Son of Man. We know that Jesus often used that title for himself, didn't he? He, he spoke of himself as the Son of Man. I think that some folks have gotten, gotten that wrong. They don't understand what Jesus was doing there. They, they will understand it as uh, that Jesus is saying, I'm truly a man. I don't think many people needed to be convinced that Jesus was truly a man. I don't think that was necessary. I don't think that's what Jesus is communicating by the title Son of Man at all. I think rather that Son of Man is a divine prophetic title. And I say that from Daniel chapter 7. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel 7. Begin our reading in verse 9. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him. From before him, thousands, thousands ministered to him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even until the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flames as concern as concerning the rest of the beasts they had their dominion taken away yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time i saw in the night visions and behold one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Well, I think that's pretty obvious who we're talking about in Daniel 7.13. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is that son of man who approaches the ancient of days and receives from him a kingdom. You'll remember Psalm 2. Ask of me. The father says to the son, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, right? So this is a prophetic vision of that. This is John seeing the risen Christ and Christ calls himself the son of man or John calls him one like unto the son of man clothed with a garment down to the foot and so on. So I think all godly commentators are uh, in agreement that this is Christ himself He walks among the golden candlesticks. And now we see him that he is dressed, he's girded, and he has certain other attributes uh, that are what we ought to see when we meet with him in public worship. So the first thing is, is that he is that divine son of man. He is the one who at the end of days will receive a kingdom from his father, Like Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he will reign in that kingdom until the last enemy is put away, which is death. And then he will deliver that kingdom up to his father. Well, beloved, that kingdom is here. When we meet on the Lord's day, we are meeting in that place where Christ is king. This is his kingdom. He is that Son of Man who has received a kingdom and is expanding that kingdom throughout the world until all of His people are brought into it. And then He will put away the last enemy death by His resurrection and by the resurrection of all of His people. And then He will deliver that kingdom up to His Father. And so our meeting, if I can put it this way, has an eschatological import. We meet today in great confidence of that final day of meeting when the king will deliver up the kingdom to his father. The second thing that John sees is how Christ is dressed. And there are two articles of adorning that we first see. The first is that he is clothed with a robe down to his feet. There are only two figures in the Old Testament that were crowned with robe, that that wore those kinds of robes, right? the kings and the priests well our lord jesus christ presents himself here as both king and priest he is the one who appears in the midst of the golden candlesticks not only to intercede or to continue his ministry of intercession his priestly work but also to lead and to guide and we'll see that in a few moments to direct to teach in this opening chapter, here we will see Christ presented as prophet, as priest, and as king. And beloved, when we gather to worship, we want to meet with Christ, prophet, priest, and king. We want to hear what he says to us. We want to understand his mediation for us, that we are acceptable to the Father. We ought to be reminded of this every time we gather for worship. And then, third, we want to submit ourselves. Uh, bow the knee to that great King of Nations, Christ. So here he is dressed. First of all, in a in a robe that reaches to the foot, and then he has about his paps that is about his chest, coming like a like a um, like a wide belt. Uh, some of you might know. Maybe some of you are going to look at me like I'm from another planet. You'll know what a cumberbund is, right? A cumberbund. No. Yes. Maybe. Okay. It's a wide. Uh, well, it's a girdle, and by girdle we mean it's something that helps you gird things on. So what men would do is rather than you know how you tuck your shirt in, guys, and then you know you pull it up just a little bit and it hangs over like this and all the way around. Well, see the cummerbund is to keep that that straightness, right? It's 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 that wrapping around everything, but it's wide. It's like this. We'll take it up a little bit higher. And that was the girdle of the kings and of the priests. They wore it up high so that it was right up at their chest. And what it would do is it would prevent their robes from tripping them or getting in the way of their work when they were, you know, I've got a a poncho that I wear at home, and sometimes I'll want to bend over and pick something up, and the poncho, (laughs) I can't get it all done. But if you have something on like a girdle, that will take care of that. But the girdle is made of gold. This speaks of his opulence and kingly array. Whereas the robe may speak of him being a king, certainly a priest, this golden girdle that he, that he has on speak, speaks of the royal or the golden array of Christ as king. In verse 14, we look at his his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. So, First of all, you'll remember back in Daniel just a few moments ago, we read that there was this figure called the Ancient of Days whose hair was white like wool. And, and the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days. Well, you see here, both of those attributes are given to Christ. He is the divine, prophetic Son of Man, but he is also that, that one whose goings forth are of old, of everlasting. Micah 5.2. Our Messiah is also our Jehovah, in other words. And so when John sees him, he sees him as Messiah, but he also sees him as the Jehovah, the God that he is, in that he has this white hair like wool. And this speaks of wisdom and time, or wisdom and everlasting time. That our Lord Jesus Christ is, he's not old. Because his years never fail, right? We read, we read that back in Hebrews chapter 1, that his years never fail, yet he is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we, read, and we understand also that that whiteness of hair speaks of an omniscient wisdom. And so when we hear of Christ having that white hair, we are thinking of his years and age. We're thinking of his eternity. But with eternity, what comes with it? That omniscience, that wisdom that comes with eternity. And beloved, whenever we meet in public worship, we meet with this Christ. He walks among the candlesticks. He inhabits the praises of his people. He is here meeting covenantally with his people as we have heard. And now he will reveal himself to John in this very way on the day of meeting with his people. So this takes us down through verse 14, except the second half of verse 14, his eyes were as a flame of fire. Well, we will see this Elsewhere, won't we? We will see this elsewhere in the book of Revelation. We'll see it in chapter 19. We'll also see it in chapter 2 and verse 18, since that's just across the page. Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. This is that letter hearkening back to chapter 1. So what does it mean that Jesus has eyes like a flaming fire? Well, this tells us that there's nothing hidden from his sight. This tells us that his eyes burn through all the dross, all of the lies, all of the deception. And beloved, it is this Christ we meet with when we come to worship. This Christ, with these flaming eyes, we come to worship him. He sees in and through and around and all that we are. All that we bring. This is the Christ we meet with. Let's look at a couple of passages of scripture. Daniel again, chapter 10. Verse one, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth. Neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and 20th day of the first month, As I was by the side of the great river, which is Hidekel. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked. Behold, a certain man clothed with linen, whose loins were girded with the fine gold of Uphaz. Is this sounding familiar yet? His body also was like the beryl. And his face as the appearance of lightning, his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words was like the voice of a multitude. Who is this? This is Christ. Christ appeared to Daniel. Christ appeared also, we won't take the time to read it, to Ezekiel in, that, in a very similar form with a body that burned like amber. With eyes that burned like fire. If we turn to Hebrews chapter 4, just a few pages back from the book of Revelation, what will you find? Verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I I spoke uh, pretty complimentary of John Owen a little bit earlier. Here I must depart with the great master of London when I say that the word of God here is not the Bible. The word of God here in Hebrews 4.12 is Christ himself. That's why he will say, Neither is there any creature which is not manifest in his sight. Christ's sight. And beloved, do we often think of that when we're coming to church? Do we think of meeting with the risen Christ clothed in His mediatorial regalia with eyes like a flame of fire who pierces between what? Things you don't think can be pierced between uh, between joints and marrow, between soul and spirit. Things that aren't normally ever divided are divided before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do and with whom we meet and before whom we appear. So uh, Christ presents himself to John here as walking among the seven golden candlesticks, girt with a robe down to his feet, with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. Verse 15. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. What is that? What is the significance of brass feet? It's an interesting thing, isn't it? It's an interesting thing to think about. The, the metal brass is that hard metal that they used that didn't corrode, didn't rust, and so on. And it was the metal in, of, of judgment. It's the brass that was the metal that was chosen for the, gold, for the golden-colored altar. It was not golden because gold doesn't do well in fire. But brass does. It gets harder and harder. And so they brought their animals, and they placed them on this brass network over uh, with the, there was this brass box, about seven and a half by seven and a half feet, covered on the outside with brass and on the inside with brass, and a brass grate across the top of it, large enough to receive an ox as a whole bird offering. Yeah, just think of the engineering of that. Think about the Levites carrying that around. Right? Think about all of that. But then think about this, that brass is the metal of judgment. And so Christ has brass feet by which he goes forth to judge his enemies. How does Christ go forth in this world? How does Christ advance his kingdom in this world? What is the thing that the Lord has chosen that is foolishness to the world but the wisdom of God, the preaching of the word. Christ appears in the midst of his church with this ministry of the word, and it is in that way that Christ goes forth in judgment to lead his people and to stamp out his enemies. His feet are brass. He is undeterred. He's hardened in his way. He knows what way he's supposed to go. And he doesn't go to the left. And he doesn't go to the right. And if his enemies are in the way, they will feel the weight of his boot. This is how the Lord Jesus goes forth. And he does so in the meeting with his people. His voice as the sound of many waters. And we're assured of two things here. Right? The first thing is that his voice will be heard. And the second is that it will be heeded. It's a voice of might. It's a voice of power. This is not yet the voice of the gospel. We'll see that in a moment. This is the voice that accompanies this risen Christ who is king of kings, who goes forth against his enemies with a powerful voice. Remember, the voice of the Lord divides asunder all kinds of things. We've heard that, haven't we? And so... The first thing that John hears with regard to the voice of Christ is something that sounds like a trumpet. The second thing is many waters. And both of these are designed to teach the same thing. That our Lord Jesus Christ is powerful in his word. He's powerful and he is unstoppable in his word. Beloved, this is the Christ we meet with Lord's day by Lord's day, and may I say it this way, he does not appear in this mediatorial regalia anywhere else. It is here that we enjoy these attributes of Christ. So his feet were likened to fine brass as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun that shineth in his strength. Three things, right? We have the stars, we have the sword, and the countenance. Now, were you struck like I was in reading this? So you have this figure that is represented as this warrior king or this warrior priest if you will you'll you'll remember that when they needed swords in the land of israel where did they go they went to the temple where the priests were the priests wore swords as well as the soldiers they had to have a temple guard to protect the things of god from any attack right and so when you're going to wield a sword what do you use You use your right hand. So you grab that sword with your right hand and go take care of business. Is that what it says here? No, it doesn't say that at all. It says in his right hand were seven stars and out of his mouth comes the sword. Well, that's to call our attention in. What are we learning there? What is it that the Lord Jesus has done in his presentation of himself in the context of public worship to tell us, to teach us? Who are the stars? We don't, uh, we don't need to wonder about that. We're told at the end of the chapter. The stars are the angels of the churches. Now when we hear the word angel, I don't want you to hear the word spirit being. I don't want you to hear Gabriel, you know, um, Michael. You shouldn't hear those names. We're thinking of the ministers because the word angel in its most basic form means a messenger. Simply a messenger, one who is sent on an errand with a message. Well, those are the angels of the churches. So they're the ones that have a, a message. Why are they? Why are they called stars? You know, I don't think you'll ever hear me stand up in this pulpit and meaningfully say, "You know, your minister is a star." <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to say that, not in that sense. What were stars in the ancient world? What did they do? Well, we'll remember that they were guides when it was dark. The stars were guides when it was dark outside. Beloved, what is it out there? It's dark out there. Where are the stars? In the midst of the hand of Christ. What are they doing? They're leading the way through the darkness. That's their job. These stars are in the hand, the right hand of Christ. He doesn't even have his sword in his right hand. His sword comes out of his mouth that the ministry of the gospel might take that word of Christ and preach it and lead the people of God and be those lights in the darkness. Where does that take place except in the public worship of God? Oh, I know in our day, we can have sermons anytime. We live in a, in, a, in a concierge society, don't we? Garcon, get me a sermon when I want it, please. Right? We're kind of like those kings of old who couldn't bother themselves to condescend to go to church with the commoners. And so they had their court preachers. You come to me and preach, right? They had a concierge ministry. And, might we say, that very few of them had the godliness of having a ministry at all. Here, we have Christ wandering, if you will, walking, abiding in the presence of His churches in the seven golden candlesticks, and in His right hand, in the hand of His strength and dexterity. And one commentator, really good, who says, We have a Messiah who doesn't only have feet. He's got hands too. He knows how to go and he knows how to work. He knows how to go and he knows how to be effective. And so in his right hand are those guides in the dark place, the stars. And out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. And it's two-edged because it does two things. It cuts two ways. It cuts defensively and offensively. It cuts to heal and it cuts to hurt. Right? It is the word of God that slays us and draws us to Christ. Or it is the word of God that draws us into the dust of death who are rebels against Christ. And so that ministry of the word that is held in the right hand of Christ is here in the midst of the church because this is where Christ is walking and it is, it is in his right hand because this is the hand of his dexterity, the hand of his skill, the hand of his movement in this earth. So as we move on then, he holds those seven stars. So we've seen him in his princely robes, in his priestly intercession, and now we see him also as the great prophet in the church, sending and upholding his ministers, his messengers, his angels to his people. And beloved, I say to you that our private ministry, I'm sorry, our private worship has no such ministry as that, although we live in a concierge age when we can just turn on a sermon whenever we want it, it's not the ordinance of preaching. Turn with me to Psalm 45 for a moment. Verse one: My heart is inditing a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore, God hath blessed thee. Uh, therefore, God hath blessed thee forever. Verse three: Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. I think just about every commentator agrees that the king here that we're talking about is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that it is his right hand that goes forth and reveals those terrible things those things fearful and wondrous Psalm 45 verse 4 advances this idea in that the right hand of Christ in its working reveals terrible things by the ministry of the word and sacraments by the steward of the mysteries of God he holds them so that they are supported then and carried in their labors and out of his mouth goes goes this two-edged sword The Apostle Paul will write in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that this preaching of the word in every place is a savor of life unto life and death unto death. Oh, may it be life for us, beloved. It is two-edged. And then finally it says that his countenance is as the sun. That is, that it is here in this church, in churches that preach the truth, where he reveals his glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll begin our reading in chapter 3. Verse 12. Seeing then that we have such hope, We use great plainness of speech, not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn unto the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same glory, uh, into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid It is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His face shone like the sun. How? How does it shine here in Second Corinthians chapters 3 and 4? It shines in the preaching of the gospel. And in no other way. So let's turn back to Revelation chapter 1 and we'll bring ourselves to a close. So what have we seen of Christ as he walks among the candlestick? We've seen him in his kingly office. We've seen him in his prophetic office. We've seen him in his office as judge. We have seen him in his equipment to be that judge and teacher in that his hairs are white like wool. He is wise beyond years and he knows all and sees all. We have seen him in moving straight forward in his working by his brass feet. Taking that pure path and stamping out his enemies that would dare to impede him. We have seen him also that he has in his right hand seven stars. He has a powerful voice like many waters. And he has his seven stars in his right hand that they may be guides in a dark place for his people as he leads them with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. And we see that in hearing him, we learn to see him, or we learn to see, as it were, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, for his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. All of these things are here, beloved. We may not have eyes to see, ears to hear or hearts to perceive as yet we may have never even had anyone tell us these things as they are available and open and present to the people of God in the worship service we may have grown up thinking ho-hum with the worship we can come or go as we please but if we saw the worship from the perspective of Christ we wouldn't we wouldn't think that at all we'd be the first in line And last to leave. We wouldn't wander about during the worship service. We wouldn't be aimless in it. We would come as much as we are able to be focused, asking the Lord for his help, that we might see Christ in all of his mediatorial regalia, risen, girt about with gold and linen, with white hair burning eyes and we would feel those eyes upon us and we would, although we would be tempted to turn away, we could not for His grace and love. We would see that He has given us a way to follow Him in those brass feet and that the enemies are not an impediment for us because they are not an impediment for Him. And we would also hear those stars that lead us in the darkness that we may go through hearing that voice of Christ that two-edged sword that we would be cut so that we might fall upon that stone and be saved and in him in Christ we would behold the glory of God the lord has chosen beloved to set Christ before us in this way in this testament. In the Old Testament, when the people of God were under age, there were times when the Lord came down, descended in such a way as to make that glory visible to their watching eyes, to their physical eyes. Today is not that day. Messiah has come. He has sent His Spirit. He has opened our hearts and now we see these things no less truly, albeit differently. We see these things by the eyes of faith. We receive these truths because our hearts have been opened to receive them and we come to the place of the seven golden candlesticks that we may commune with the one who walks among us. If we understood public worship like that, we couldn't be drug away with wild horses. Oh, we all have a long way to go, including your pastor. Oh, that the Lord would open our eyes. Remember Elijah. He has his servant with him, and his servant is worried. (laughs) We're surrounded by the enemies. We're surrounded by the enemies. And what does Elijah say? Lord, open his eyes and what happens the eyes of the servant are opened, and he looks at the hills around them in the valley that they're in and they're entirely encompassed about with god's own armies we get up on sunday morning we're tired been a long week maybe we were tasked late into saturday night And all of our nature is telling us, don't go today. It's okay. It's not a big deal. There'll be another worship service next week. You can hear another sermon next week. Or you can do the concierge button sermon. You can do all of it. Don't worry about it. It is at times like that, beloved, that we want to pray, Lord, open our eyes that we may see Christ in all His mediatorial regalia as he walks among the candlesticks and we partake of his brass feet of his white hair of his piercing eyes of the stars in his right hand and the sword that goes forth from his mouth as we bow ourselves before him who is clothed head to toe in linen with a golden girdle, because he is here although we may not see it he is here He promises to be here, and he doesn't break his promises. So, I've tried to present for you the the, the fruit of my meditations this week. I pray that it's been helpful for you. Let us then come every week eager to meet Christ, who promises to be here to meet us. Let's stand and call upon the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ and how John has presented Him to us, how Christ has presented Himself to us here. Oh, we thank Thee that we come to our Lord Jesus Christ, not as John, perhaps, in that he fell at his feet as dead, but that we come to Christ as the one who lives though He was dead, that we might live though we were dead we thank thee for presenting Christ to us in this way in this first chapter that we might receive and believe and rest upon these things is our prayer that thou wouldst open our eyes not just to see the chariots of thine armies that surround us but the leader of those armies in our midst O lord help us to prize this public worship as our Lord Jesus Christ prizes it and meets with us here. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remain standing and let's turn to Psalm 5, 1 through 7.